But for now, let's move on into the book chapter. So remember, this is Christ of the Prophets. We are on the chapter entitled Prophets Anticipating Exile in the Later Eighth Century. And the structure of the book so far has been establishing the general ideas surrounding prophecy. What did prophecy look like in the Old Testament? Pastor David, or no, Dave Dumpy maybe established a timeline for us. Someone established a timeline for us of the prophets. And now we've been going through in relatively chronological order as best as we're able to know the chronological order of the prophets and describing how those prophets related to Christ, but also how they related back to the covenants that were previously established in the Old Testament. In the later 8th century, Isaiah and Micah are the two prophets that Robertson is going to have us focus on. They were alive um, to prophesied to Jerusalem and Judah, primarily to Judah, in the late 8th century, and they spanned the kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And if you remember very briefly, the first and the last of those, Uzziah and Hezekiah, were generally considered to be good kings, righteous kings, and Jotham and Ahaz were not considered to be righteous kings. They were wicked in their ways, and they did not follow the Lord. Some more background. Isaiah and Micah lived during the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom, so although their primary prophetic ministry is for the southern kingdom of Judah, and they did not live during the exile of the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom was being exiled towards the end of their ministry. And Micah and Isaiah also share some overlapping themes. So you'll notice in the structure of this, Robertson spends a lot of time talking about Isaiah, and he only spends a couple of paragraphs, maybe three or four paragraphs, talking about Micah. And the reason for this is one, of course, Isaiah is a mammoth of a book. It is a huge book of prophecy. It is also huge in its role in the New Testament. And so it plays a significant role as far as quotations go there. Not that Micah isn't quoted, but Isaiah is not only more quoted, but very well known, especially as we get into chapters 50 and onward. Many people are able to quote from Isaiah as it refers to Christ. And Robertson tells us, Micah explains a lot of the themes that will be more robustly expanded on in the book of Isaiah. So we'll start with Micah very briefly, and then we'll look at how Isaiah expands and extends these themes that are present in Micah. Robertson takes a very covenant-oriented look at Micah. He says that the primary prophecy of Micah is centered on the Israelites' failure to keep the law. So this would be the covenant of Moses, the Mosaic covenant. All of the law outlined in Deuteronomy, well, first in Exodus and Deuteronomy and some in Leviticus, this is what has been broken by Israel. This is the grounds for the punishment or the discipline that they're going to undergo. This is the grounds for their exile. And, of course, as many of the prophets do, they go into great detail about the destruction that's going to happen, and it's not pleasant. So where do the Israelites find their hope? Not in the covenant of the law, not in the covenant of Moses, but rather Micah points them to the covenant given to Abraham and Jacob, that they will prosper, that they will have the promised land, that you will not be able to count the descendants of Moses, or of Abraham, rather. And this covenant promise of hope is expanded even more in the covenant of the Davidic king, 
the king of the line of David who will come and bring peace. And we know that wasn't David, because remember, David wasn't even allowed to build the temple. Now, of course, temporally speaking, in the Old Testament, we look towards Solomon as the king of peace, who was actually able to build the temple. And yet, in Micah, we see there is a greater hope than Solomon. There is someone greater who will come to bring true peace. And so Micah announces the destruction of Israel on the basis of these covenants, the destruction of Israel due to the failure to keep the covenant obligations and how they will be exiled to Babylon. And then after exile, Micah brings in this remnant that will, that will remain even after destruction, even after exile. And he describes a fruitful flourishing, a restoration of the kingdom, the renewal of paradise, and the king greater than David, not Davis, David, who, um, who will bring them hope, who will bring them rest, restoration, reconciliation with God. And so all of these are the very root of what gets expanded and grown on in, in Isaiah. So moving on to Isaiah, which is basically the rest of our Sunday school, and that's the rest of the chapter. As I said, he's, uh, Robertson spends in a 30, approximately a 30-page chapter about three pages introducing us and then telling us about Micah, and all of the rest of it is devoted to Isaiah. So you can take that as an indication of how important Robertson thinks that it is. As I said, though, in Isaiah, there are some similar themes to Micah. There are elements... And Robertson calls this out for many of the prophets, that in the calling of the prophet, whether it be a vision or an auditory calling that they receive, many of the elements of that calling itself are expanded out into the rest of the book. And the same is true with Isaiah. So there are some key elements to the call that Robertson focuses on. And they are, once you get under the bullet point key elements in Isaiah's call, the highest bullet the highest level bullets are those bullets that Robertson describes for us. So that would be the exaltation of the Lord as king, the universal character of the Lord's domain, the sinfulness of God's own people, the inability of the people to hear the word of the Lord, and the exile of the people and their restoration to the land. So those are the five things that Robertson really pulls out as key themes of the book of Isaiah. Let's start with his calling, though. First, we focus on the exaltation of the Lord as king. In chapter 6, verse 1, we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now this is, first of all, establishing the timeline, when exactly did Isaiah's ministry occur. But it's also an interesting pairing that Isaiah overtly says, in the very year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. So why does Isaiah pair together the death of the king with the description of the Lord on his throne? Or what does that juxtaposition highlight to you? Earthly king dies and the heavenly king never does. Yep. So the temporality of the earthly king. What else? Yes, sir. Corey. Okay. 
okay, great. Yeah, so just because the earthly king has died does not mean Israel was without a king. Good. Corey? Okay. I don't know enough historically to speak to that, but Corey says um, there are some some theologians have said that that Isaiah had a relationship with King Uzziah, and it took the breaking off of that relationship for him to look to the Lord. Is that what you're saying? That is that what they're saying? Excuse me. Okay. All right. What else? Yeah, so the temple could not contain just the Lord's robe. And so how much grander is the Lord compared with Uzziah? Does anyone remember what happened at the very end of King Uzziah's reign? He was considered, he was counted as a righteous king for the majority of his life. Yeah. He took on the role of the priest upon himself, and he was reprimanded from that and had a great fall from grace, so to speak. And so, despite the splendor, so to speak, the righteousness with which King Uzziah reigned, even before his death, he fell as imperfect and inadequate to rule over Israel. And yet, here, as we've established, looking at the Lord, the king who never dies and who never falls, is completely righteous, completely good. It is good for us, I think. Yeah, Travis. Yeah, so even for our needs, you're saying that Uzziah was just the king, and God has given us, or is that what you're saying, prophet, priest, and king? Yeah. Yeah. It's all there, yeah. Yeah, so God has given us in Christ prophet, priest, and king, not just a king. But with this juxtaposition next to one another, all of these things being contained in it, we look not to Uzziah or not to the worldly king at all, but rather towards the Lord who is high and lifted up the train of the robe filled his temple. So we see King Uzziah's fall from grace. We've compared God's rule versus man's rule. So God's rule is permanent, eternal, and man is the secondary means by which God rules sometimes, but God's rule is perfect and upright and holy and man falls is imperfect unholy 
One important thing to remember during this time is that the Davidic promise is very much on the minds of Israelites, but also very much on the minds of their enemies. The enemies of Israel have seen what their God is capable of doing and what he has promised them. And so Syria and Ephraim in particular want to remove the Davidic king from the throne because they know what has been promised from the line of David. And so in chapter 7 of Isaiah, the Lord first offers through Isaiah this sign to the, the current king Ahaz because everyone in Israel, including the king, is afraid of the invasion and the destruction that would be caused by Syria and Ephraim as they attempt to bring down the Davidic king and the Davidic line. So the Lord offers him a sign, and Ahaz, in his vanity, says, I'm not going to test the Lord. And it's really hard to tell just reading it, but we can tell by the way the Lord responds that Ahaz is not doing this out of some holy righteousness, but rather out of a vanity, a self-assuredness that does not belong to him. So in chapter 7, it says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. And when he refuses, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So God is offering up this miraculous sign of encouragement to let Israel know, no matter what destruction may come, I will give you a child of the Davidic line, and you will have your son. You will have your king. And some things, some attempts have been made by critical scholars to wipe all of the supernatural elements out of this verse, primarily focused around translating the word that we read as virgin. Some will try to translate that um, even in some Bibles. I think the RSV is specifically called out, but in some, in some translations it is translated instead as a young woman instead of a virgin. Robertson gives us his translation. Most literally, the context of the word that's used is a virtuous, unmarried young woman. And so Robertson said, well, virgin captures that pretty good. Um, From the fact of her being virtuous and unmarried, and also as the the type or shadow of the, the virgin woman. And Robertson says, Quoting from him, only the same unbelief that marred the response of King Ahaz to the message of the prophet will rationalize away the wonder of this word. So he's saying the very self-assuredness, the very um, vanity that King Ahaz had that made him not want to ask for a sign, that will make us and tempt us to not rely on some miraculous occurrence to read into this text. So we have to ask then, because this is the critique we get, and I don't know if any of you have followed any of this, but it's the 100th anniversary that J. Gresham Machen wrote Christianity and Liberalism, which is a great book I highly recommend, and this is a topic of his writing. Is it really necessary for us to include all of this supernatural stuff? Why can't we just have plain old Christianity without the miracles? Why not? Any other 
Anyone want to add to, to that? Specifically, not just the scientific method, but the philosophy of naturalism, or only the scientific method. Yeah, yeah, Victor. Very temporal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> yep. Good. Any other thoughts? So as Nick said, it's essential to our faith. It is essential to what Christianity is. And as Machen will tell us, if you have some belief that looks Christian and lacks the supernatural, that's not Christianity. Call it someone else. Call it something else. That's what he says. You know, have the guts to stand up and say that you're not a Christian and that what you believe is not Christianity. And then, you know, stake your claim in that so that we can have an honest conversation about it. But ultimately what we're seeing is without the miracles, we have no Christianity. Without the transcendent, what do we have to hope in but this world? And there is so much throughout the scriptures, even aside from the outright miracles that occur, that references us to something higher than ourselves, that references something to, to us, something transcendent something that we can actually hope in outside of this. So they are very much necessary. Now, onward in Isaiah, so the name of the given son is Emmanuel, and this points to the divinity and the salvific nature of the promised son. This Emmanuel is God with us, God among men. And holiness is a defining characteristic of this promised son, but of Isaiah's Lord, the one who is giving him these prophecies. This is where we see what some theologians call the trihagion, which is holy, holy, holy. This is the three times holy Lord. And God is called the Holy One of Israel in this book 25 times in Isaiah, split about evenly from the first half and the second half of the book. And in the other prophets, he is called the Holy One of Israel or something like that only two other times in any of the prophets, and both of those are in Jeremiah. So Isaiah is seeing something in particular, not that the other prophets didn't know, but that is unique to his message as something for him to highlight, a theme that he needs us to hear, that he needs us to understand and to know. He is the one who calls him holy, holy, holy. He is the one who cries out, the Holy One of Israel, essentially, once every other chapter, almost once every other chapter in this book. And Isaiah identified this God as holy. He identified his Sabbath rest as holy. He calls his arm holy, which is the means by which God does his actions. He calls Zion holy, the roads to Zion holy, the temple of the Lord holy. 
not only does he call God the Holy One of Israel, but he is abounding in, description, in descriptions of God as the Holy One. And so, starting with the comparison all the way back to King Uzziah, as an earthly king who was in fact good, and yet, as Travis pointed out to us, not holy enough to make it into the temple or to make the sacrifice and be accepted. God is the Holy One over and over and over again. The next thing that Isaiah wants, to, wants us to see very briefly is the universal character of the Lord's domain. And once again, <clears throat> this has been covered a little bit already and Travis highlighted the temple or the, the train of the road filled his temple, but also the whole world. God is the owner of everything. God is the creator of everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If he were hungry, if he were thirsty, if he needed money, he would not ask us because he owns it all. And Isaiah really wants us to, again, to see God is not merely one God among many. He is the owner, the creator of everything. God has a plan not only for Israel, but for all of the nations. We will see how this pans out, how God does plan to discipline and to punish Israel using the other nations, but that doesn't send those nations home scot-free. Because God used them against Israel, they still are responsible for the sin that they commit in doing so. So God has control and thought-out plan for everyone. And ultimately, from an end times or eschatological standpoint, all will kneel, all will look to God. All will know him as the true God. Whether or not they are among the elect or not, every knee will hit the floor. All will bow before God. And so his domain is complete, although it feels at times very incomplete, and sometimes it may even feel very unsure. Isaiah is sure to remind us that it is absolute. Third, Isaiah wants to tell us about the sinfulness of God's own people. Isaiah highlights them, perhaps this is the most personal element of his message, the most personal theme that we see, because the first thing that Isaiah does whenever he sees this majestic image of God is crying out, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. And we always, it's always interesting to point out how he highlights first his lips as being unclean. James tells us about how dangerous the tongue is. Isaiah knew it centuries earlier. So God cleanses Isaiah with a coal from the sacrificial altar. But from this we see even the mediators for Israel are unclean. We remember all of the cleansing rituals. Once a year, the priests were to go and make an ultimate sacrifice for all of Israel, but first, they had to cleanse themselves. And then, when the next year came around, they had to do the same thing over again. And all along the way, day by day, week by week, they are having to make sacrifices for their own sin. So Hebrews, of course, reminds us of this, that all of the prophet, or the priests, rather, of old are inadequate. Even the prophets we see are sinful, not perfect. And we must know that all of the mediators that we've had up to this point and all through the Old Testament are not worthy and not holy to bring to us the message of God 
or to bring to God our pleas. So Isaiah has an answer for us. In Isaiah 40, he says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So how could this be? Isaiah goes on to tell us, who is this mediator? How could it be that our iniquity has been pardoned? And Isaiah says this very famous verse, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is, all through, is, all through Isaiah, the mediator, the sacrifice, the priest, the king that is promised for us is the one who will be crushed for our sins, the one who will give his life so that we might have peace. He will give his flesh so that we might be healed. Number four is the inability of the people to hear the word of the Lord. So this grand message that he has given us First of all, that you are sinful, and in terms of exile, in terms of the country of Israel, you will receive punishment for that. You have broken the covenant, and yet these messages of hope that Isaiah keeps interjecting. Isaiah is told from the very beginning that he will have a message for Israel, and they will not be able to understand it. They will not be able to hear it. Think how discouraging that would be as the prophet, the one who's been assigned to give Israel a message. And Isaiah is told, yeah, they're not going to get it. They're not going to understand it. And you're going to spend years preaching this message. So Isaiah tells us that he is bound to do his duty. He is bound by the Lord's command. In fact, he cries out to God, send me, O God. And yet knowing that Israel will not listen, that their blindness is their judgment, because... They have broken the covenant. By their actions, they have shown over and over and over again what they want from God, which is temporal pleasure, satisfaction in this life. And so God gives it to them in a way. But he also promises them a Savior who will open their eyes, a Savior whose very call can raise the dead, whose very touch can heal the deaf, and whose very message is a gospel of joy. So once again, we see a message of utter despair. This is the message Isaiah wants to get across to us that you cannot hear, you cannot understand. And yet, at the same time, he's giving us hope. Fifth is the exile of the people and their restoration to the land. So first, we all know, I think, or at least most of us are aware of the utter destruction death and calamity that happened during the exile of both the northern and southern kingdoms. So our question is, how can we describe God as loving, given the threats and destruction he brings to his people? Okay. He's patient. Yep. Josh?
Good. Any other thoughts? Yeah, very good. God is not kind to let us continue in our sin forever. And... Right, right. And we also remember that as hard as the doctrine is, God has called out some to be his children, not all. And the some is anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be his child, will be saved. So the offer is free and open, and yet God will not always love not his children as though they were his children even though by his grace he did make not his children his children as we learned I think that was from Dave Dumpy was that Dave we'll, we'll say Dave and it was we'll probably write with with that one um, <clears throat> and so we see Isaiah is um, kind of asking this question and the people are asking the question too how long must the prophet deliver this message of destruction Isaiah wants to know because remember he was promised that the people wouldn't hear his message well, so how long am I crying this out this message and the answer he gets is until the city lies ruined until utter destruction happened once again though in his faithfulness and because we are looking back through not only the Old Testament, but we're looking through the lens of Christ in the New Testament, we know. Isaiah promises, but as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in this land. So this is not, this is the end, but it is not the end. The destruction is complete, but it is not complete. It is utter, but it is not utter. God brought down his hand hard on Israel and yet he saved a remnant and he left the holy seed as the stump which would grow and blossom to be even greater than what Israel had before so since we've had this promise of restoration from exile where do we see the first promise of restoration from exile the very first one in the garden yeah good Sunday school question right so and we are promised in the garden. First of all, Adam and his offspring are exiled from the garden, but they are given a promise that there will come a seed who will crush the head of the serpent. And from that, as we love to say in this church, um, some have said that from Genesis 3.15, all the rest of the scriptures are just a footnote to that, a description of how that happens. And in many ways, we see that as true because being exiled from the garden, even our forefathers, starting with Abraham, knew to hope in that seed. And all the way through the Old Testament, that hope, God makes good on that hope. He reminds us of that hope. And of course, in Christ, we see that hope. We've mentioned this already, but as far as exile goes, God is going to use the wicked nations to punish Israel's disobedience. And again, we've already said this, but that doesn't mean that wicked nations go scot-free, but they are the secondary means by which God acts. And then as far as restoration goes, the inclusion of the Gentiles will emerge as a major theme in Isaiah. In many ways, he describes to us how 
redemption will mean something new for God's people, not just the restoration of those born of Abraham, but restoration of something greater than the old glory that Israel had, restoration that will be sung out and cried out to all the nations. The stranger will be welcomed in to Israel and offer the very same thing that Israel was offered. Next, Israel, as far as back to exile, Israel, and I had never noticed this exact connection before. I thought this was really beautiful. Israel was brought low, as low as low can get, destroyed, read Lamentations, know how low Israel went. And then Israel was personified as a man without any beauty or majesty to attract people, with a countenance disfigured and misshapen beyond humanity, cut off from the land of the living, and yet restored and given his portion from the Lord. This is Christ. All through Isaiah, I've referenced on here for you where I cited those from, but Christ is brought low, not seemly, not one to be looked upon favorably, cut off from the land of the living, put on the cross and, and executed, and yet rising from the dead, restored, given his portion, given his bride. And in the same way, Israel is rising up from exile only through the grace of God. So Palmer Robertson says, exile and restoration mean humiliation and exaltation, death and resurrection. And how sweet it is to think of that. The many servant songs in Isaiah, lastly, the many servant songs point to Christ. We will not talk about those for sake of time. I would encourage you to go read the servant songs. If you are not familiar with them, they beautifully point to Christ, and we can see that so clearly because we're looking back through the lens of the New Testament. And then our last little bit here, and Robertson spends a little bit more time on it than I thought right for Sunday school just because he goes into some real nitty-gritty details. I would encourage you to go read it if you're interested, but he talks about the critical appraisals of the book of Isaiah. One of the main things that's become popular when critically assessing Isaiah in addition to what we talked about earlier with the uh, removing of the miracles and the terminology of uh, birth from a virgin, one of the main things that has been popular is to attribute multiple authors to the book, saying that there are two or more, more commonly three sections in Isaiah that have different focuses, different elements, and then because of the prophecies that are present in Isaiah, of course the presumption from the start is that these can't be prophecies, so of course because they accurately depict what happened, they must have been written after the time that they happened. So this is the theorizing that goes on about the authorship of Isaiah. Um, chapters 40 through 66 specifically, this is the last third of the book, is argued to be or presumed to be written by an author, like I said, who lived during the exile of the southern kingdom because it, Isaiah is looking at the northern kingdom and telling the southern kingdom what is going to happen to them. So remember, he did live during the exile of the northern kingdom. Uh, the name of Isaiah is not mentioned in the second half of the book, which is somehow used as a reason to say that Isaiah was not the author, rather than, again, you can see very simply how 
If you want to presume that Isaiah is not the author of the whole book, you will find evidence that he's not the author of the whole book. But if you're presuming that Isaiah is the author of the full book, then the evidence that's pulled out to say the latter or say the contrary is sort of nonsensical. Just not mentioning the name of Isaiah is not evidence to say he didn't write the book, especially when the name of another prophet is not written either, someone who could have written the book. Um, such commentators, oh yes, I've already said this, such commentators seek to remove the prophetic, that is to say the miraculous or the supernatural element of the book. Some of the arguments that Robertson gives in favor of Isaiah as the main author, he points out that the gospel writers assume Isaiah to be the author of the book even when quoting from chapters 50 and onward. The gospel writers presume him to be the author. Um, furthermore, when you're thinking about the trustworthiness of an author, why would someone not named Isaiah tag their scripture onto the end of Isaiah's writing? Well, it could be most likely, many would say, to get the clout that Isaiah had, to gain the trustworthiness that Isaiah had. And yet, it's not as though there was one scroll to the book of Isaiah when it was written. There were many, and they relied on scribes to transcribe them. And so it is very unlikely that we would see this massive work, about a third to a half of the book of Isaiah, tagged on to the end, knowing that he's not the author, and we would have no evidence that there was some fight or complaint about that in the history of Judaism. So there are many reasons that Robertson goes into. Very briefly, why does the authorship of the book matter at all? Why do we care about this? Travis. Let's hear it. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a great point. So Isaiah was commissioned by God to say what he said. You bring in another author without whom we have evidence of a commission, and you bring in uninspired work, sort of tacked onto the end. Yeah, great point. Last one. Very good. I would encourage you all, it can be fruitful to read critiques like this. The accusation that you will get generally is that we presuppose the supernatural, that God exists, and that the scripture is infallible. Just remember that there is no objective standpoint for that which you can critique that question. If we have presuppositions, so do they. And oftentimes their presupposition is, no, that's impossible. So, um, have faith in Christ. That's what Isaiah says. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for wise and well-read writers for us like Robertson. I pray that this time would have been fruitful for us, that we would keep, hold on to, chew on, and meditate all of the good things, that anything unhelpful would pass by us. Prepare our hearts as we're moving into our worship service. Cause us to look to you to sing to you, to pray to you, and to hear, receive the sermon with undistracted hearts that are completely focused on and looking to you. All this we pray through Christ. Amen.